You already know that subscriptions can add predictable recurring revenue to your store. But did you know that Bold Subscriptions has added a ton of new features to make it even more profitable? Their convertible subscription feature first lets customers subscribe to one product and then automatically switch it to a different one the second month. Why? This way you can set up trial sizes, free samples, like uh, all those shaving websites. They've also added a cancellation flow to keep people on the subscription that I think is really cool. It's like abandoned cart recovery, but for subscriptions. So if you've ever tried to cancel your Audible account or anything like it, you'll see what I mean. If you say you don't like it, the books, they'll offer you one for free. If you say it's too expensive, they'll try to give you a deal on the next month. Basically, Bold built this into the subscriptions app, and it stops up to 30% of customers from canceling their subscriptions. And their most recent feature is the subscription buy button that lets you sell your subscriptions directly with a link that's perfect for email, blog posts, Facebook, whatever. Now, one of the things I personally love about it is that customers can manage everything about their subscriptions by themselves. They can log in, pause, skip, edit, update, payment info, their address, swap products, add products, whatever. They can just manage everything themselves. That's a huge time savings for merchants because it means fewer customer support requests. Now, if you want to add predictable recurring revenue to your business, Bold's offering their subscription app to listeners of the unofficial Shopify podcast free for 60 days. Go to kurtelster.com slash bold to install it. That's kurtelster.com slash bold. Additional support for the unofficial Shopify podcast comes from SEO Manager. You already know the benefits of SEO. The higher you rank in search, the more visitors you get, and more visitors means more sales, which means more money in your pocket. But how do you do it? That's where SEO Manager comes in. It helps Shopify store owners get found in search engines more easily and it's trusted by thousands of store owners. No surprise there, it's equal parts power, innovation, and ease of use. Think of SEO Manager as your optimization toolbox. Here's some examples. It can scan your site for issues, offer keyword suggestions, add structured data support, analyze missing pages and redirects, and even integrate with Kit, plus a ton more tools to help you be easily found in Google searches. Best of all, it's easy to get started. You can get started in minutes, and their friendly support team is always on standby if you need help. Seriously, I have met them. They are the best. And as a special offer to you, you can get 10% off SEO Manager forever when you sign up at seomanager.com unofficial. That's seomanager.com unofficial. So, Julie, Mrs. Yes. Elster. Hi. Hello. Uh, on this episode of the Unofficial Shopify Podcast, I'd like to talk about your favorite underwear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tell me, who, what brand is it? You bought some life-changing underwear, like, three, two, three years ago? Are you talking about Thigh Society? Thigh Society. Okay. It's such a great name. Yes. It's like, you know, I... I always use the example dog lawyer, where it's like, if you hear someone say, I'm a dog lawyer, you got to know more. Mm -hmm. Thigh society. I'm like, what is that? Well, so what is that? It is fantastic underwear that I believe I found um, postpartum. I think it was after we had our daughter and I had gained some weight. And so there was an issue in the warmer months where I'd 
like I'd feel like my thighs were always touching when I would wear dresses or like comfortable loose fitting clothes because I was postpartum and it was super uncomfortable. And I don't even know how I came across thigh society, but it's like it's underwear, but it goes a little bit longer and covers your thighs, but it's not like spanks or um, like a spandexy type thing that sucks everything in. Like it's super breathable and comfortable. And then I didn't have issues with like rubbing together or chafing. And so I found that was great postpartum. And because I'm always going to Disney World in Orlando, where it's always it's incredibly roughly hot and 140 humid. degrees and 200 humidity yes every day always and you're walking around outside constantly so i found those to be a just like a total game changer for when i was walking around the parks for you know 10 hours at a time because so much walking and even at my thinnest i just naturally have big thighs so i found these to be a total game changer life changer uh, and did you end up ordering more pairs or you just bought one pair? I don't know how many I have. I have several. Okay. I so there were multiple several. orders yeah. placed. Yes. Okay. This is in. And what got you to place the multiple orders? Was it like it? So initially it was a, a Facebook or Instagram ad. Yeah. You checked it out. You bought them. Yes. On the first go or did you research it? Mm, I prop my guess. I don't remember because this was a while ago, but typically what I do if I'm going to buy something from an ad, I will scroll through the comments and then see what people oh, say. Don't read the comments. And then, well, okay. But if people, if it's, you know, universally people being like, these are great, then I'm like, all right, now I'm going to do a little Google research and see if I can find other people who maybe negative comments haven't been deleted on Facebook <laughs> to make sure that it's, you know, a good product. So that's most likely what I did. And okay. I ended up ordering a pair. And then when they were great, I ordered more. Okay. And I'm very familiar with this because you were so excited about these. I heard many times, you're like, oh, I love these underwear. <laughs> it's really hard to be a postpartum woman in hot months when you're trying to lose weight, but also wear it like loose fitting. And I had a C-section. So loose fitting, comfortable clothes were what I needed to be wearing at all times. Um, and so these ended up being um, life-saving for me. All right. And joining us so that we can learn more about this life-changing underwear is Marnie Konsky, the founder, CEO, and chief anti-chafing champion of Thigh Society, a niche undergarment brand offering moisture-wicking, breathable, and discreet boxer brief underwear for women. So uh, in the problem Thigh Society solves is it prevents inner thigh chafing while providing modesty coverage and a body and uh, the whole and the entire brand is on a bo body positive mission to normalize this entirely common skin issue while helping women love their thighs at any size. That's a great tagline, but I love it. Uh, Marnie, thank you for joining us. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I mean, that introduction from Julie, I mean, she's hired. <laughs> <laughs> Julie, you're hired. You know, what's funny about it was I, you know, I was, was very familiar with Thigh Society because of, um, of her experience. And then we connected and I did uh, conversion rate optimization work for you mm -hmm. and then connected you with one of my colleagues. Yeah. So it's a small world. It's a small world. And it's honestly a full circle moment and really such an honor to be a guest on your podcast since it was around this time last year that I first discovered the unofficial podcast. And to think that I'm a guest right now is just super cool. So happy to be here. When, how long has this thing been going on? When did you start Thigh Society? Oh, a long time. Um, so I started Thigh Society in... 2009 officially uh, with a website, but the concept and ideation took a whole year before that from July 2008. 
And I like to joke, by the way, that I was one of Shopify's very first stores. I think actually uh, Kelly, our web developer, checked and we're one of the first thousand stores on the Shopify Whoa. platform. Yes. Which is Wait, I wonder how she figured that out. I think, I don't know. That was like, that's above my pay grade. Yeah, (laughs) I can ask her. Um, And so, yeah, I started the idea for these anti-chafing slip shorts uh, was really born out of a need for a product for women that didn't exist. And I, I was, I never identified as a plus size woman, but you know, my thighs touched, um, you know, Julie mentioned this a little bit in her intro, my thighs have always touched and whether my size has been a size six or a size 12, regardless, um, anytime there's warm weather out and I'm walking bare legs with a dress, my thighs get sweaty (laughs) and they rub together and a rash ensues. And so it was honestly the first hot day of summer in June of 2008. And I was wearing a dress to work and on my lunch break, taking a walk and my thighs started to rub together. And I I thought, shoot, you know, I I remember this problem. You know, we get like three months of summer here in Toronto, pretty much uh, the rest of the year is winter, pretty similar to Chicago, I would imagine. I was going to say, I'm familiar. (laughs) Yeah. So you have a short term memory, right? When it comes to summer, you're like, oh yeah, I remember this season. Um, and I remember running to a drugstore and grabbing whatever I could find at the time it was baby powder and just sort of slathering it on my thighs so that I could walk back, um, with dry thighs. And I really thought, you know, there has to be a better way. There's got to be a product on the market. That's not shapewear. That's not tight. Um, like a long leg boxer brief for women, um, the same way men get all kinds of leg lengths, right? Like for boxer briefs, you can go into any store and pretty much have a selection between short, mid, long, ultra long, you name it. Um, But for women, the only choice really was um, like shapewear for long leg coverage um, or cutting leggings and, you know, wearing bike shorts like from Under Armour or whatnot. And so essentially I made it my mission over the course of the summer to try to find a pair of shorts that met my laundry list of requirements, you know, lightweight, breathable, seamless, um, you know, super comfortable because most women who are wearing this type of garment don't really want to be wearing, uh, you know, a base layer. They want to be able to have the freedom of bare legs. So the most uh, you can make this garment, you know, invisible and forgettable once it's on um, is really, you know, that's a sign of a great product. And I wasn't able to find anything um, over the course of that summer. So I really spent the time, um, pounding the pavement, visiting local boutiques, um, visiting department stores, looking online. Um, I can't remember if Amazon was, well, it's definitely, Amazon wasn't as big as it is now in 2008, but I certainly spent a lot of time scouring the internet looking for uh, this product that I was, you know, hoping to not have to create, (laughs) quite frankly. Um, I was really a reluctant uh, entrepreneur, uh, especially in the sense of taking on an apparel or an intimates company. Um, I had grown up in Montreal where uh, back in the day that was a real hub for garment manufacturing. And so I had a lot of friends whose families were in that business and just remember hearing that, you know, there was all kinds of things that just didn't necessarily appeal to me or seemed like they were a bigger headache than they were worth. And so I was a little scared off from, from the idea of, you know, making clothing of any kind. So I was really hoping during the course of that summer that I would find a product that would meet my needs and then I could just move on my merry way. Uh, but that didn't happen. Uh, and as I got, you know, deeper in this couple of months of research, I realized that there was probably, um, I probably had a good opportunity to give this a good go. So, all right, 11 years ago. Wow, that feels like a long time, doesn't it? It really does. It's <laughs> amazing how common your this initial story is where you have a pain or problem in your own life 
you say there's got to be a solution for this you go looking through the solutions find none of them are particularly good or just flat out don't meet your criteria and you go well somebody's got to make something better why not me and then you you attempt to do it so once once you had that that why not me moment what's the next step because true manufacturing something scares the shit out of me right mm-hmm. like that's there's me a too. big difference <laughs> <laughs> it still does you've done it so like trying to get a, a physical good made is a scary proposition yeah. where do you even begin yeah so i when i decided to quit my job to to focus on this full t- full time i don't know that i knew that it would be a temporary um First of all, I didn't know that I would be back in the workforce so quickly after, but I also decided that uh, I would take this time to learn all I could about the industry. I set aside at the time $8,000. It was under 10,000. I ended up spending 8,000 to get, you know, as a goal to go from developing the product, uh, producing the product and launching a website Um, and decided that that was money that I could live without if this didn't end up working out. And so I really did commit at the beginning to say, this is one of those things that if I don't take the jump, if I don't try this, you know, the worst case scenario is I'm out $8,000. And I had saved up for that. It's, it's not an insignificant amount of money, um, but I was okay with, if I never saw that money again. And so and it was important to me that I, that I had allocated that money, that I wasn't worried about, you know, needing to borrow money at the time. And I am a very risk averse person by nature and a risk averse entrepreneur. I think I think my risk profile is changing as the years go by, but especially when it came to manufacturing and the idea of committing to, um, you know, certain, yeah, like an order. You said it's changing yes. more or high, oh, more or less risk now. I think I'm less averse, risk averse now. You kind of have to. And be. you weren't particularly risk averse then. I was very. Oh, sorry. No, I was very risk averse then. I'm less risk averse now, but still more risk averse than than I can observe from some other entrepreneurs. I relate. I see other people make like crazy investments. And in my head, I'm just like, you're gambling. That's gambling. Yeah. Oh my God. Don't do that. Yeah, um, exactly. And then, you know, they be, you know, end up like with obscene sums of wealth. And I'm like, all right, well, maybe I was wrong. <laughs> Same. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Risk reward. Exactly. Okay, exactly. And I'm sure we'll touch upon some of that in, the, in this chat. Um, but so when I, so I had committed this money and I thought, okay, I, I committed the time because I had quit my full-time job. And essentially what I did was I started uh, doing some research in terms of what local organizations existed for any sort of fashion entrepreneurs, even though I never have and still don't consider myself in the business of fashion. Um, we make a real foundational undergarment in the intimates category, but of course we have to sort of, we, you know, we position ourselves as, as fashion, even though, you know, our niche is, is within intimates. Um, and so I had I had found actually a local organization that was a not-for-profit that had a lot of online resources, some free and some very low-cost guides that you could download uh, to learn about how to um, how to build a, a fashion business, how to scope out um, sewers and pattern makers, and a list of local domestic factories and things like that. And then I went online and I bought a couple of books. On you know, I remember my first book was The Beginner's Guide to to seamless manufacturing. <laughs> so I read that book and I got my highlighter out and I was taking notes and I really took this on like a class project um, in terms of, of just trying to gather as much information as I could uh, from the manufacturing side. I also spoke to a lot of people. So that was the freedom of not working during that time so that I could have a lot of meetings during the day, um, whether on the phone with people who weren't based uh, in Toronto or um, or uh, or even after hours when some people were available. So I spent a few months having a lot of conversations 
Um, and I also, at the same time, kept uh, trying to do some online surveys spread through my group of friends and their group of friends uh, about asking women what type of undergarment they would want this to be, you know, sharing my idea of creating this undergarment and trying to sort of crowdsource feedback in terms of, you know, if you could weave your magic wand, what would be the key features that this undergarment would need to have? And I also did that online and some chat forums and things like that. That's, I want to highlight that it's such a, a critical and important step and like strategy and tactic. The strategy is before you make anything, talk to your potential customers and try and validate your idea with them uh, and, and see what info you can. Like it could send you down quite the rabbit hole that you didn't expect. Uh, and the, I heard if you could wave a magic wand. As soon as I hear that question, I know market research is being done and <laughs> I am happy to help because you just want to know how I think and what I think about X. Oh, I have opinions, man. But that that's that like critical question is if you could wave a magic wand, it's saying like, all right, ignore the current situations, ignore the current solutions. You've got this, we've agitated this pain or problem by describing it to you. If you relate to it, you know, what's the ideal solution? And so finding if multiple people agree with you on your solution or come up with an even better idea. That's a million dollar question. All right, continue. Yeah, totally, totally. And that still remains uh, a key part of our processes today when we're thinking about new product development. We do customer surveys, you know, we we post surveys through Instagram stories and things like that, so even just quick one-offs. So definitely our customers are always a source of, uh, of ideas and feedback. So I was collecting all of this, this feedback. I was really trying to be a sponge, soaking up everything I could about manufacturing. I was reading online about e-commerce and, you know, I didn't, I don't think I even understood at the time, like what a payment processor was versus a website. <laughs> like I, I had to come to understand like, what is WordPress? Um, and this was back in the day, of course, when Shopify didn't have those downloadable templates that you could now, you know, make a full blown website out of in a couple of hours. Um, I knew I would be in a position where I had to hire a web designer to build that website, that WordPress site for me, um, and a graphic designer to do all of the design, et cetera. Um, but I also uh, was researching domestic manufacturing. So at the time, being a startup, knowing I was very risk averse, knowing I really had no plans of taking out a loan to start this business, that I really wanted to be self-funded from the beginning, Domestic manufacturing was my only option because once you start going overseas, you're facing really large minimum order quantities. Um, and I also really wanted to stay domestic um, as long as I could. Uh, and it's also, it was much easier to find somewhere local because you could just sort of, you know, pop into the factory and see how things were going. And lucky for me, um, I had a wonderful network and in my network was um, uh, an acquaintance who was very well connected to domestic manufacturing in Canada for a large apparel company. And so he was able to facilitate some introductions. Um, in addition to that list I had acquired from that local organization um, and met with a couple of factories and, you know, I was interviewing them as much as they were interviewing me, um, especially when you're coming in really small, you have a small budget, you know, you're really looking to find out what their minimum order quantity is and you're hoping it's affordable because especially when you're doing apparel and intimates i knew from the get-go that i didn't want to do a one-size-fits-all undergarment because as a consumer um i had tried other you know shorts that were one-size-fits-all but really <laughs> those undergarments are often one-size-fits-none um, or one-size-fits-one because they're meant to fit one body type and one size and so i knew going into the production process that i would need affordable minimums so that i could start with at least four sizes from a small to a to an xl or a 2xl 
And so uh, I worked over the, those coming months, those months between, I would say, July and, and December to learn, absorb, survey, and ultimately come up with a prototype um, with my factory uh, that was delivered to me on, I think it was Christmas Eve. So, you know, I had this working prototype finally of this idea that I wanted to create uh, in my hands, which was super cool. Um, made with fabric that we had, I had also found a local um, fabric supplier. So that's another thing at the time, you know, thinking back to 2008, I didn't have the money to buy, you know, bolts and bolts and bolts of fabric, um, whether from an overseas or domestic supplier. So I really had to find local suppliers, or at least North American suppliers, where I could buy smaller volumes of fabric that I could then ship to the, the factory to knit. Um, things are very different now. Actually, we've moved to a completely different production process where we, we now actually make our own fabric. Um, um, yeah, pretty cool, cool. right? Um, and there's a lot less waste through the new process that we use. And our fabric, I think our products overall are much better fitting because of the nature of the yarn um, process that we use. But at the time, that was really my only option as a small business. So everything came together Christmas Eve. I got, I got my first sample from there. I ordered uh, a lot of other samples in other sizes. Cause obviously I didn't want to just be the only test model and subsequently sent out samples of this product to a lot of friends and acquaintances to try. And then they, I asked them to send it out to their friends and acquaintances who lived in warmer U S States because January in Toronto is not an ideal weather climate to be testing anti-japing shorts. Um, especially, you know, testing the moisture making <laughs> properties. Yeah, you wouldn't. I mean, you could wear them as an extra. You have to go form. hang out in a sauna. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so yeah, we went through that testing process, got feedback, iterated on it um, over the coming months, and then at the same time, I was working with my web developer um, to come up with a website. You know, I was learning and picking up a little bit of WordPress, HTML at the time. <laughs> really, like I said, this was that six month period was really. It's a superpower. Yeah. <laughs> if you could figure out, you know, if you can know just a little bit. Just enough HTML and CSS to be dangerous. Right. That really makes life easier. It really does. It really does. And I, I think I, I don't know. I think I geek out on that stuff. I think in a past life, I may have been a developer, but we'll see. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. Well, it sounds like uh, you geek out on a few things. Like, you know, just being a little bit geeky about e-commerce, web design and development, yeah. manufacturing processes, and even I hear material science made its way in there now. <laughs> That's exciting stuff. It really is. I could I could totally nerd out on that for a whole podcast, but I'm sure your listeners have different things that they <laughs> want to hear. Um, but yeah, I think and I think curiosity for any entrepreneur is so important, right? Yes. It's, it's like you have to be curious, especially in those early days for me as a solopreneur. And I was a solopreneur for the first five years. I mean, that's the frustrating part ongoing, I think, too, about being entrepreneurs. You know, you you often need to find the expertise. You don't need to be an expert in everything, but you need to be curious enough to learn enough to be dangerous, you know, potentially, or learn enough to know who you need to hire or who you need to bring on. And so, right. you know, at the beginning, well, yeah. and it, it helps you when you're doing the hiring, it'll make you more comfortable, yes. but it also helps you talk the talk. Like yes. I in no way expect my clients to know web development, but if they understand, you know, even like 1% of what's in like Paul Rita's head, <laughs> My gosh, that makes it dramatically easier. 
for, for me, it'd have to be more like 10% because I'm not operating at his level. <laughs> no, for sure. For sure. And I, I still employ this tactic. Um, and I did it a lot at the beginning, which is when I was speaking with um, my manufacturer uh, and others in the in the apparel industry, I would often say, can you explain this to me like I'm 10 years old? You know, I need you to please boil this down uh. to the basics or explain it to me like you would explain it to your grandmother. <laughs> because oftentimes we get so caught up in our respective industries with acronyms and industry speak. And it's really, it's, oh. it's tough as an outsider to figure that out. And, you know, the well, in those, yep. those buzzwords exist in part to exclude outsiders. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to teach something to someone, you want to avoid, you know, buzzwords and acronyms and abbreviation and all that stuff. And just try and like, if you truly understand it, you can teach them the simplified version. When you're saying like, teach to me like I'm your grandma or I'm 10. Mm -hmm. That's what an executive summary is. Yeah. The assumption is the executive does not need to know the details, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's a skill in itself. Yes, totally. I think it's a skill we could all use. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great lesson for life. <laughs> you decided to do it. You committed to, I'm going to try this for six months. You did tons of customer research, mm -hmm. risk averse entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Uh, which I appreciate all these things. And you decided you're going to bootstrap it yep. um, through your network, which all right, but the unfair advantage, you want to look at your network and see you know who can help you with whatever you're doing. And maybe they know, they know someone who knows someone who can help you. That's why you want to explore those avenues. And you've got, all right. So now you've got your, your prototype manufactured in your hands, Christmas Eve. Where do we go from there? How do we get our initial sales? Like you, you know, you're building the site. This is early days. Yes. This is before things, you know, the tools were starting to be democratized. Yes. But they're not where they were now. Yes. And so a large chunk of that $8,000 investment went to my web developer and designer. I think it was about $5,000 <laughs> went to my web dev and my designer to come up with a logo. And, you know, we did, we did a photo shoot as well to get some product photos. And the remaining 3000 was roughly to, for the production, for the first for the first round of production. And so what I did leading up to the launch in July um, was I had gathered a few samples from, from the manufacturer. And I, again, went online and looked up what we would now call influencers. Then they were more known as bloggers. Um, and so I was able to come up, you know, I'm very methodical and very organized. I'd say one thing, you know, maybe what makes up um, to, for some of my risk aversion is that I feel like I can control things if I'm more organized about going about them. And so I had my spreadsheets and my lists, and I was very methodical about coming up with a list of however many, you know, bloggers that I could um, that I felt would be amenable to trying the product. And I was fairly confident that they would love the product and then they would write about it and share with their readers. And then that would potentially generate more sales. Um, and that's really fundamentally how I, how I started. Um, I went out with this approach of, you know, let's get some free PR and let's, um, let's hope that people love this and start coming to the website. I was very deliberate about making this an online business as opposed to focusing on wholesale. But at the time I did feel that, for, from a um, proof of concept perspective, I really wanted to have some, I wanted to have some wholesale accounts so that it could validate the business. So if someone was shopping online, and I, I think the internet and online shopping's come a long way since then, but I did have this concern in 2009 that if people were, you know, happened to find my website and were shopping on there, 
you know, would I have more credibility as a brand if I could demonstrate that I was also sold in retail stores? Like, okay, this company's not real, not a fly by night. You know, they're legit. They're sold in stores. I'll give this a go. So you wanted, like, as a form of social proof, mm -hmm. you wanted logos or availability in retail stores. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I, I think that's a good strategy. I, For sure. I think that, like, you're not going to see that and go, well, these guys aren't legit. <laughs> definitely not hurting. Right. No, for sure. And I mean, in hindsight, I think I would still approach it the same way. And I, as, as the years went on with wholesale, I really didn't approach new wholesale accounts as time went on. And I, this was a very deliberate decision on my part, um, for a number of reasons, mainly because I was a solopreneur and I was, I felt really there was only so much that I could do and I wasn't a sales rep. Um, but I do remember in early days, like, you know, 2009, as soon as I had product, I was making phone calls to different stores that I, again, had sourced, um, you know, come up with my spreadsheets, you know, here are all the boutiques I'd like to sell to in Toronto that are specialty lawn, lingerie, um, lingerie and bra shops. Same thing for other cities. And I remember being the most nervous having those conversations because I didn't know anything about like sales or this whole industry. But I'd call and say, you know, I have this product, you know, would you like to carry it in your stores? Um, and ended up locking in about a dozen wholesale accounts. Um, one or wow. yeah, and it, one or two were consignment, and I quickly learned that that was not something I wanted to do. Um, and so, with smaller minimum order quantities, you know, I think I let my, some of my early companies start with something ridiculously low, like six pairs. Like, what six pairs at wholesale price? It's affordable. Well, you're risk averse, and so are they. <laughs> right. So, say like obviously, like a store is always going to say yes to the consignment. The problem is like they've no because I I in my teens and twenties I worked countless retail jobs so very familiar mm. when the stuff's on consignment um you just don't have there's no fire lit under you to move the stuff right so it's like yeah we got that uh, just stick it wherever it'll fit mm -hmm. and it just ends mm -hmm. up on like a pegboard somewhere i'm thinking back to like my bike shop days i'm assuming that these like fine boutiques don't use pegboards. <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah you know, like versus the stuff where it's like all right we got it and you know, we paid for it, but like they'll replace it with next year's model mm -hmm. at the uh, end of the year. But like that stuff, somehow magically, that always took priority over the consignment stuff, right? Yeah. Because that that represented cash that they owed. So totally. All right. Yeah. So little, I was not a retail perspective there. Oh yeah. I mean, I so I made a I made a real decision early on that wholesale was not an avenue I was going to pursue. I, I was happy with the initial boutiques that I had lined up who were only in Canada because I didn't want to deal with the extra hassle of customs and duties of shipping over the border to the US. Um, and so that's sort of been my approach over time. I think it's just sort of, it's been validated. I think it's difficult as an e-commerce business to be everything to everyone. And when you want to be able to offer, you know, promotions and deals to your customers online, if you have a huge wholesale presence, you have to remember that those wholesalers are going to be asking for similar promotions because how can they be expected to compete? 100%. Um, and so really, for, you know, from an early, uh, early on in the business, I, it was also a function of just me being myself, like just me. I thought, you know, I'm just going to let this, I'm going to leave this sort of where it is and let it grow organically. If I get demand from a whole bunch of Canadian wholesalers, I'll evaluate those um, each one, you know, individually on a case by case basis, but I won't make it my mission to pursue. Um, and that's really been my strategy ever since. And even now when we onboard a few um, new boutiques here and there. I'm very transparent about how we operate online because I don't want them being surprised and, you know, coming back later saying, you know, I can't believe you're doing this promotion and you're not giving us this deal. Like I operate with full transparency. Are, are, I think that absolutely, that's the best way to handle it. You're like, look, this is, this is the score, take it or leave it. Like no one could be surprised when you have those clear expectations. 
as part of your agreement with them, are they allowed to sell online? Yes, they are. Yep. And can they, do you have a uh, map minimum advertised price policy? Nope. <laughs> and can they sell on marketplaces? Can they sell on Amazon, eBay, Etsy? You know, we don't have anything formal that prevents them from doing that, but the size of these retailers are, are quite small. They're not, they're not like the Nordstrom's of the world. So even if they did, you're like, whatever, go for yeah, it. Yeah. I'm kind of like, you know what? Like they're <laughs> women owned businesses too. And I'm just, you know, if, if it ever got to the point where they were undercutting me and, you know, to a volume that was concerning, obviously we would be addressing that, but it's, I don't, it's never gotten to that point. And they have their local customers, you know, their local following. Um, you know, especially with COVID, a lot of them had to shut down. So those that had been set up online were still able to, you know, target their customers. And, and I want them to have that, right? I want them to be able to stay in business. So yeah. I think for me, what's what's interesting about that is knowing you and knowing how organized <laughs> um, you are and how like process driven you mm -hmm. are, that there are some things in your business that still, even for you, there's a laissez-faire attitude to it. Where it's like, all right, not everything is worth, you know, the full management yeah. effort yeah. of my, my type A personality. Correct. <laughs> okay. How much do I owe you for that therapy session? <laughs> <laughs> I do. There, a solid 15% of my work on the phone is business therapy uh, with clients, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, no, I just, I see, I relate to a lot of, um, a lot of your journey and a lot of what you've said. And so, like, even that aspect, you know, I. I recognize it because it, it takes one to know mm -hmm, one, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff where I'm like, this is how this is done. Mm -hmm. And there's other stuff where I'm like, why do I even care? Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, and you have to decide and know what those things are and you kind of figure it out over time. Exactly. And over time you get better at that and letting go and delegation and, you know, all of that good stuff, which I guess that's a good segue into, you know, how I went from solopreneur to not solopreneur, but... Um, Hold up. It's safe to say that most of us have been doing more shopping online lately. I know I have. There's just a pile of packages in front of my door. I can't even get the front door open. But if you're an e-commerce brand, that means you might be seeing more first-time customers. But once they've made that first purchase, how do you keep them coming back? That's what Klaviyo is for. Klaviyo is the ultimate email and SMS marketing platform for e-commerce brands. It gives you the tools to build your list, send memorable emails, automate critical messages, and more. Way, way more. That's why more than 30,000 e-commerce brands like Chubby's, Brooklinen, and Keysmart use Klaviyo to build a loyal following. Strong customer relationships mean more repeat sales, enthusiastic word of mouth, and less depending on third-party ads. Now, whether you're launching a new business or taking your brand to the next level, Klaviyo can help you get growing faster. And it's free to get started. Visit Klaviyo.com to create your free account. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com. Talk to him. Well, what I want to know, I still have a good grasp on early, like, how did you get those initial sales? How did this business start growing? And how did you know, you know, when did you go, all right, time to leave full-time employment again mm. and go full-time entrepreneur? Yes. So the timeline for that was I launched in July 2009 and I quit my full-time job in August of 2016. So just about four years ago. So there were seven years of, <laughs> of wow. deliberation uh, between, you know, should I do this full time or not? And I would say, so, in, so how did I grow the business in those early days and what led to my decision? Honestly, I, 
if I think back, it was really just a lot of word of mouth. And it was a lot of that, those early press hits. There was a couple in particular that I got from some bloggers that were picked up by Buzzfeed. And wow. yeah, and that was huge in early days. Um, and so that led to a lot of traffic. And the business was really small for those in those early years. I was really running it, you know, still like a hobby. I still, I don't think I was really still convinced that this could be a big business. And I was enjoying it because it was scratching the itch to learn. Um, I was, you know, becoming more adept at, you know, some of those WordPress and you know, some of that coding and marketing and, you know, a little bit deeper in manufacturing. And it was sort of scratching this itch to learn where I felt I hadn't necessarily been learning that much in my career for previous years. And I had a job that I was really enjoying. I was working as a, a career coach for MBA students. Um, and I thought, oh, that sounds fun. It was, it was really fulfilling. Um, and here I was, you know, applying, I guess, practical knowledge um, from saying, you know, hey, you these are a lot of my students were career switchers, you know, entering into their MBA because they wanted to do something different. And so really being able to to coach them and steer them down the path of how to make that switch at the same time, you know, essentially doing the same thing in my own life <laughs> um, in tandem. And so as the years went on and the sales kept climbing, and again, it was I really think it was a lot through word of mouth. I wish I could sit here and say we were an early adopter and figured out that Facebook ads was where it's at. But I only came to Facebook ads in 2016 after I, I quit my full-time job. Um, you know, we were just even dipping our toes in social media. We were like had a very bare bones presence on Facebook um, at the time. And so sales were growing very, very steadily and slowly by me reaching out to other influencers or bloggers and continuing to slowly build that business. You know, I had one product too. Was This was not a mega corporation at the time. So I was really treating this as, as a side hobby. And then ultimately what ended up happening is I think some press turned into more press, you know, Huffington Post covered us and, you know, Bustle and Refinery29 and that was leading to more sales. And around the same time, um, you started to see a bit more media activity around around chub rub and chafing. You know, some of these bigger um, media outlets started covering those topics um, in the springtime. And so naturally, because we had been around using keywords since 2009, uh, Fact Society was showing up number one in organic search, you know, just by happenstance. <laughs> yeah. So that I think a lot of that is and then we weren't doing any Google ads. Like we only started doing Google ads two or three years ago. So it was really growing organically. Um, and it got to the point where, like I said, it was just, it was time. I felt like the business did have um, opportunity to grow. I don't think I realized I was really contributing to inventing a new product category at the time. Um, and because I was so risk averse, I really needed the numbers to, to prove it. And our sales had grown year over year. You know, that $8,000 investment was, you know, long recovered. Um, and I just felt like, you know what, if not now, when and you know i was turning 40 so maybe there was some midlife crisis <laughs> happening there uh but i believed in myself as far as my skill set you know i have a i've had like nine careers <laughs> in, uh, throughout my life in mba career coaching and consulting and i you know hr strategy and you know i felt that if this fell through you know if i couldn't really if i quit my job and, and couldn't get this thing off the ground uh, to become a full-time job then i could always uh, find something else you know i really had the confidence in myself that i was hireable and so is at the time I consider it to be a really low risk, low risk decision. And so, and that was 2016 and I've never looked back. Well, congratulations, clearly the correct choice. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's, it, you started 11 years ago <laughs> and you've been full-time for four years. Yes. If in, you know, when you started Instagram wasn't even a thing. Mm -hmm. So 
kind of a a a, a thinking out loud question. Yeah. Let's say you just said, you know what, I'm done with the thigh society. Mm -hmm. You just blow that thing up today, mm -hmm. and you're gonna you've got a brand new idea. You're way more excited about. Mm -hmm. Also, fashion and apparel. Mm -hmm. What you're gonna reinvent? You're gonna invent another category. You're like, one's not enough. I want another mm -hmm. one. What do you do differently? What do you think that like that launch plan looks like in 2020? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't know that I would do that much differently. I mean, obviously now I know a lot more about e-commerce and uh, marketing and manufacturing. And so the runway time that I gave myself treating this as a very casual hobby for those few you know years in the beginning, those, you know, that time period would be condensed uh, immensely because I could, you know, I have a lot more knowledge under my belt um, as far as that goes. So I would have condensed that period of time. I would talk to more people sooner, you know, who, who were more, um, uh, more in a position to help me rather than some of these conversations that ended up just being very educational. I would probably seek out people who I could partner with even um, to accelerate it, to sort of bridge that gap in my knowledge with them. Um, but I don't know that I would do that much differently. I could tell you for sure I wouldn't start another apparel or intimate business. Um, oh, no, no, I don't. Um, the inventory, you know, a product-based business um, is, is so tough for anyone making products. Um, but the inventory required, and, and I would say this is, it is philosophically aligned with how I want to run the business. So I'm not bitter about it in any way. But when you're talking about apparel, if you... In, in Thigh Society's case, I wanted to create a garment for every woman. I wanted a woman who was a size zero all the way up to a 6XL and above to be able to have an option to have a comfortable fitting underwear without any shame around it because we've maintained from the beginning that thigh chafing has nothing to do with size, um, nothing to do with weight. Really, it has to do with skin sensitivity and friction under the right circumstances. So basically, I knew from the get-go that I would have... Uh, I would have inventory challenges that I'd have to work through. I needed to decide, you know, on colors. And we first launched, we only had two colors because if you think about it, you're going to launch um, two colors and three sizes. So you, know, you do the math. It just keeps adding up in terms of how many SKUs you need to have. And so with manufacturing and apparel, um, being a brand that we want to, you know, we want to make sure we can accommodate all these sizes, the inventory, as the inventory, uh, as our sizes got bigger and as we developed new products, our inventory investment increased. And so you're left um, holding a lot of inventory. You're doing a lot, we're doing a lot of forecasting around what can we sell, what sizes are selling. You know, then you introduce colors and you have certain minimums for colors. So you have to offer those across all the sizes. So it's just, I think it's a lot of my, again, my risk averse nature speaking in terms of, I don't like the idea of carrying a lot of inventory over time. I, I, and I want to constantly iterate and develop and launch new products, but you, I always am tempering that with, okay, so how much, you know, what's my turnover? How quickly can I sell this inventory through um, and then replenish and then launch new products? So yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't think I'd go into apparel. I think I, I still wouldn't be averse to a, to a product-based company, but I, I don't think I would do another apparel business. Right. I, I absolutely see that, that perspective just in that in, in e-commerce, you get into this hamster wheel mm -hmm. of I have to sell this inventory to get the cash to buy more inventory to get <laughs> it just keeps going like that. And you're right. As soon as you're in apparel and it's like, all right, well, you know, it comes in three sizes, five sizes, six mm -hmm. sizes. Oh, my gosh. Oh, it comes in three colors. All right. Well, now every product requires 18 lines, each with their own minimum order quantity or 18 skews, yeah. each with its own minimum order quantity. Oh, my gosh. Now I'm purchasing a lot of inventory, tracking it, housing it. That's maddening. How since you learned, you know, you didn't know any of this when you started and 
you are you are very wise. Now, what what advice do you have around inventory forecasting for someone who's new to it? Like, what do you wish you knew ten years ago? Oh my gosh, I'm still learning, um, and I've now been able to outsource a lot of that forecasting to my my uh, CFO, who also plays a double role as COO. And I think I've given this advice to entrepreneurs starting up a product based business. Um, now, and I, it was the same advice I gave to myself and that I followed when I first started, which is start small. You know, I would say start with one product and be really good at it. Um, even if it means that you have to wait a year before you introduce a new product that you're like dying to introduce that you think your customer base would want. Because if you get stuck with, you know, a huge order for multiple products that you can't, you find out one of those is dead in the water and you can't sell it, then what? And so I think there's, you know, especially in my early years when I was speaking with a lot of people um, who were, had experience in wholesale and retail and apparel, one of their initial uh, pieces of advice to me was, you know, well, how can you, you're not going to succeed. You only have one product. You have one short. Like, how are you going to make a business out of that? <laughs> right. And I said, okay, I hear you, but I really want to make the best anti-chafing slip short out there. And I want to establish a solid base. I want to be able to get feedback from my customer base about how we can improve. And then I want to get their, their feedback on what else they want to see from this product line. And I don't think there was a single person I spoke to who had experience in this industry that, that agreed with me. You know, it was either expand your product line immediately um, with different styles of shorts or add a tank top. People like to buy in sets or how are you going to sell to wholesale? They're going to have trouble selling just the shorts. And I, I struggled at first, but I was able to block that out and just go with my gut, which was, um, and again, probably risk aversion speaking of, you know what? No, I'm going to stay with this one product and I'm going to know the ins and outs of manufacturing this product. I'm going to hear what my customers are giving me in terms of feedback. I'm going to really perfect the marketing and the language and the branding around this product. And I'm going to get so good at it that then I'm going to take the leap and start expanding the product line. And I, I still give that advice until you know to this day it's, it's not for everybody some people look out and want to grow really super fast and you can't necessarily do that with one with one product but i think there's still you know we don't hear enough about about that option in terms of you don't have to come with a huge product line you can you can be very deliberate and methodical in how you launch your brand and so just from a you know cost perspective cost savings perspective try to you know start small start small and and, and grow and who knows that that product can be your flagship and you can build around that so I still am in that camp of, of stay small, if it makes sense. But I think you can build a business around one product. And I think I'm living proof of that. I, I think that's fabulous advice. <laughs> I really do. Um, so we're, I could keep going. I mean, we could keep going for I know. 30 to 60 minutes easily. <laughs> I, but I have to wrap it I up. Um, one of, all right, a few questions. Yes. Common one that people struggle with is like, how do I know when to hire? And mm -hmm. who do I hire first? Mm -hmm. What was... What was your experience there and, and maybe your advice around yeah. that? So I, I think you had another guest on recently who said, you know, um, he was from the BombTech Golf. S Sully, I think it was Sully who said. Sully, yeah, Tyler Sully Sullivan right. for BombTech. And that, that podcast really resonated with me because we have a similar way of thinking, which is, you know, as a solopreneur, when you're starting out, you want to know a little bit about everything in your business or a lot about everything in your business. Because usually when you're early on, you can't afford to hire the experts to do it. Um, but over time, I think it's important to sort of recognize that you you need to know enough to be dangerous or you need to know enough to hire the right people who can come in and take over for you. And so, you know, in my case, I started uh, 
the first person I hired was in 2014, um, was part-time. And actually, I should just back it up a second. Thigh Society is built entirely with freelance contractors and agency partners. So I am the only full-time employee in the business. And I think, again, going back to that low-risk profile, um, as well as cost, and I think some of my consulting background played a role here, where when I realized it was time to bring some people on, I wanted to hire experts. So I wanted to hire someone who could parachute in and start the work that they were really good at from day one, rather than have to sort of figure things out on the go. Um, I also was having trouble or knew I would have trouble finding a, a generalist for, you know, one product business at the time. Um, it would be too expensive for me to hire someone who was, you know, amazing at e-commerce and marketing and, and um, you know, shipping, fulfillment, operations, um, all in one go, because I was still a relatively small business. And probably most importantly is I think I realized that I had so many responsibilities as a CEO that I felt that I needed to keep my finger on the pulse of the business. Um, that the human aspect of managing employees, just I felt like I wouldn't be able to give it my all, you know, in terms of developing a team and, and finding out what people's career goals were. I just didn't have the confidence that I could do both of those roles really well. And so I chose to focus on the CEO role and then bring in um, outsiders and freelancers to help me. And so the first person I brought on was someone who at the time was just finishing a master's degree in, in like social media and PR. And so she uh, she would give a couple of hours a week curating articles online that had to do with uh, topics related to our brand or topics that are that would resonate with our customers, like a lot of articles around body positivity and body confidence and things like that. And then I also had engaged the work of a product designer because around 2014, I was thinking through how we could make improvements to the product. And so I needed somebody with that deep expertise um, who was a freelancer herself uh, working for multiple clients at the time um, because my factory didn't have that expertise in-house. Um, and obviously, I had also brought on a web designer. I didn't mention that, but that was one of my early hires. So obviously, another freelancer who had built that initial WordPress site. And then um, obviously, you know, as as the business was growing, I was picking and packing and shipping all of the inventory out of my home office. And that that became unsustainable. And so I at first was very worried that it would be unaffordable um, to find a, a local 3PL. And this was back in 2015. I think there's so many more options now for, for 3PLs. But that was, you know, that was a pretty easy decision, right? Because I knew that I just needed someone to take those hours away from my day who could pick, pack and ship my orders. And I also knew that they could negotiate better rates with the postal service, you know, so I could offer in turn, you know, more affordable shipping to my customers and whatnot. So that was a no brainer. And then I'd say one of my, my most key hire was my, my CFO slash COO um, in 2016. And this was the year that I quit. She, she's, we were introduced through some mutual contacts and I would say she was really my therapist, um, my business therapist um, for the first, for, from January, 2016, right all the way right through till August till I left uh, my full-time job where, you know, I think everybody could use a mentor um, and someone who they can bounce ideas off of and share, you know, concerns and fears because being an entrepreneur can be really lonely and, you know, you don't even need to find a mentor who is, you know, in your industry. And in my case, um, my CEO happened to have had experience in, you know, as a general manager and she had some manufacturing experience and she had dabbled a little bit in, in intimates as well. So it was a really great fit. But once we started talking, you know, the relationship evolved um, from that of, you know, a business mentor to that of, you know, can we formalize this into a few hours a week or a few days a week that you can give me to start working on, you know, 
some of that, you know, inventory forecasting, working with our suppliers, and then the whole, um, you know, just finance element in terms of planning and budgeting and things like that. So she was really key. And she's, she's also still with me today. And then I also realized around this time, and I'm sorry, I'm going on for a, a long time, I'll try to speed, speed it up here. Um, I had not even touched Facebook ads um, until December of 2016. And I had heard that there was um, some opportunity there. And I think that would be an understatement now, knowing knowing that we know like the heyday of Facebook ads was probably in 2015, 2016. But I realized we had to start spending some money on marketing, that giving these shorts out to influencers online wasn't necessarily going to just keep growing the business. And that organic traffic I mentioned wouldn't be able to um, you know, keep pace with the growth that we wanted. And so I brought on uh, an ad agency uh, to, who was expert specifically in Facebook ads and Instagram ads and, and Google ads. And so you know, he was pretty self-sufficient with his team, um, you know, parachuting in, like I said, you know, getting getting our assets together, learning the brand and being able to go out and, uh, and, and we allocated some budget to that. And then brought on, you know, I was doing email marketing until this point all by myself, realizing, okay, <laughs> I'm hearing that email marketing is really important. You know, do I have enough expertise that I feel like I can grow <laughs> our subscriber list? And what's a flow? And like, <laughs> oh, a welcome flow when someone subscribes. Okay, I get that. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing that from my other emails from other companies that I'm shopping from online. So what am I waiting for? You know, and then I brought on an agency that specialized um, in email. And then, so that those, you know, those early years, um, you know, I'd, I'd say later years, but early years relative to the last four that I've been doing this um, full time were really when I started to assemble the team as the need arose, right? Thinking that I could only take some of this so far. So I knew enough about email marketing. I, you know, I was absorbing all the podcasts I could. Uh, but even then, I just, it was a question of time. And, and for me to become a true expert in email marketing, as an example, I would need to devote hours upon hours to, to learning that craft. And I just didn't have it, you know, so it was time to outsource that. And so that's how I've approached essentially growing the team. And, you know, case in point, our two most recent um, you know, freelance hires have been someone to do PR because I, again, was was still curating lists of, you know, setting up Google alerts every time Chub Rub or anti-chafing showed up at a Google alert. I would, you know, try to you know, add that person to my spreadsheet and target them for the next summer or send them a note or a DM. And it's just that is unsustainable and not a very good use of my time. Um, and even when but that, actually that's a really good strategy <laughs> tip right there. Yeah. Set Google search alerts for these keywords that are directly related to you and then add those people to, okay, they're writing about this topic. Yeah. We can reach out to them. Yeah. And I, Smart. I, thanks. And I still do. I mean, I obsessively like curate all the articles about, about thigh chafing and articles that were not mentioned in. And I, I find, you know, I refer to those quite a bit and I, I've now passed them off to, you know, the teams that are managing that. And then our most recent hire is, um, is actually your Nick DeSabato, part of your, your, oh, network. Nick D, Nick I love D. Him. yeah, he's amazing. Cause we thought, you know, I'm hearing more about all this stuff around CRO. You know, you had done some work for us uh, back in December. You know, we're getting to the point where growth, you know, could really benefit from someone's eyes on that. And uh, I'm really excited about that moving forward because as much as I want to become an expert in all aspects of my business, it's a bit of that type A in me um, and that curiosity. It's just not practical and there's not enough hours in the day to do it. So, you know, it is, I, I speak to, and I mentor a lot of entrepreneurs who are constantly deciding, you know, who to bring on first. And a lot of the time, it's funny that, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs are doing their own Facebook ads. And I, I'm always surprised at that because 
I, I did, uh, when I initially brought on the Facebook agency that we're working with now, I thought naively that, you know, hey, this seems like a cool thing. Um, maybe he can train me and I'll do it. And so we, I actually spent a month of how, how I hired him to train me on how to do the ads, but it is a world unto itself. And, you know, it's your craft if you're doing Facebook ads and Instagram ads. I mean, to keep on top of all the best practices and things like that, again, it's just, it's too hard. So my attitude is, let me bring in the experts who can who can parachute right in and do this. And if I ever want to learn from them, you know, some tidbits here and there, I do often, you know, I ask my questions, explain to me like I'm 10 years old, but I feel like I know enough to to run the business with the knowledge I have and trust the experts to to take that on. And thankfully, as the business has grown, we've been able to afford to hire those those freelancers. So. No, absolutely. Uh, all right. Lightning question. Uh, one book recommendation. Ah. Oh my goodness. Let me think about this. So, you know what? It's an oldie, but it's a goodie. And it really influenced a lot of how I run my business from the customer service side. Um, and it's the Zappos book. And I'm trying to, I think it's called oh. Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea. So it's really an old book. Yes, I know. And it's back in the heyday of Zappos. But the approach to customer service that that Tony had really set the foundation, the tone for how we approach customer service with iSociety. Being an underwear garment, a bit, an underwear company and one that doesn't really take returns, we want to make sure our customers have the best possible experience. And I think, you know, in this day and age, I, know, I think a lot of customers when they shop online are often primed for a bad customer experience, especially if there's a problem uh, with, the, with the merchandise. And I know myself, I'm super picky about customer service, you know, whether it's in restaurants um, or, you know, online shopping, whatever it may be, I notice good service. And I wanted to be able to replicate that in my business. And so it's uh, it's an old book, but it's really fascinating in terms of how, um, you know, how that business was built on the foundation of customer service with some really like very unconventional um, techniques. And then for fun, I always loved Shoe Dog, the Philip Roth um, biography. But yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. That was classic. Yeah. Uh, if one were to want to purchase your underwear, where would they go? They would go to thysociety.com. Um, and if they are in Canada, they would be rerouted to our Canadian site, but thysociety.com is where to go. Wonderful. Uh, and if someone wanted to learn more about you, what can they do? Hmm. They could send me a note, <laughs> uh, send me a note through any of our channels on our website and my team will happily forward that on. I guess I have a bit of a low profile uh, on social media, um, but they can check out my LinkedIn profile. It's for the best. Yeah, I think so. It's too hard. I don't have time to keep up with, with social. Um, but yeah, they can learn more about me from my LinkedIn profile and connect with me there as well. Wonderful. Marnie, this has been educational, inspirational. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. It's been fun. If you've ever updated your Shopify theme, you know how time consuming it can be, especially if you have to migrate customizations like app installs or language edits. Fortunately, there's a better way. The folks at Out of the Sandbox built a tool that makes updating your theme faster and significantly easier. It's called the Theme Updater app. With it, you can update your Out of the Sandbox or Pixel Union theme with the click of a button without losing any of your old settings, customizations, or app installations. You'll get email notifications whenever a new version of your theme is available. And with the Pro Plan option, you can enjoy access to priority theme support, retain custom language edits, and view template customizations to accelerate your theme updates. Start updating your theme today. 
Go to outofthesandbox.com slash unofficial to see the theme updater in action. And best of all, if you purchase Flex or Turbo using the code KURT20, you'll save 20% and get a year of access to the theme updater absolutely free. That's right. Save 20% and get one year of updates and upgrades for free. That's code KURT20 for 20% off Flex or Turbo and one year free of the theme updater app. Never miss out on another theme update again. If you'd like to help us spread the joy of entrepreneurship, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe up over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find some episode notes, including links to sites we discussed, and maybe some details you missed. You'll also find offers from our sponsors. So please support our show by supporting them. And thank you. The unofficial Shopify podcast was recorded and hosted by me, Kurt Elster, produced by my business partner, Paul Rita, for our Shopify partner agency, EtherCycle. Check us out at EtherCycle.com. Thanks for listening.